everyone, this is what your pastor didn't tell you. Today we're talking about a really fascinating subject, which is how the New Testament writers read the Old Testament. Now, many of us assume that the writers of the New Testament are just, you know, they're reading the Bible literally. You know, they're just trying to understand what historical thing happened. Well, they certainly did care about the history in some regards, but at the same time, they don't always do that. They don't always read it literally. An obvious example is Galatians 4.21-31, to where Paul actually takes an allegorical approach. He says, Tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman and one by a free woman. But the son of the slave was born according to the flesh, while the son of the free woman was born through the promise. Now, this may be interpreted allegorically. These women are two covenants. One is from Sinai, bearing children from slavery. She is Hagar. And, of course, it continues. Now, this doesn't mean that Paul didn't think that Abraham and Hagar and Sarah were all historical. He, he most probably did. At the same time, he doesn't always read the Old Testament as some straight, literal text. And this is important to remember as we're looking at other texts, because we cannot assume that the writers of the New Testament are taking things literally. Now, that's just one example, but one that I really, really want to talk about today is what Dr. Pete Enns considers his aha moment with the Bible. He takes the position that the writers of the New Testament weren't always doing, you know, literal reading of the Bible, which is, which is totally fine. At the same time, as we will see, it doesn't stop there. At worst, Pete Enns' conclusions would lead us to think Paul was flat out wrong about Paul's interpretation of the Old Testament. At best, Enns' conclusions have the Apostle Paul believing outlandish Jewish tradition. If Enns is right, this will put a dent in how many view the inspiration of the Bible. It's possible that he's not taking as nuanced of an approach as he should be. There's been some responses from other scholars that Dr. Pete Enns should take a different approach, and we'll get in that today, as well as talk about Dr. Pete Enns' view here. So, to start, he says, Here's the issue that made it impossible for me to shake the feeling that something was wrong with how I was taught to think about the Bible. The Bible just wasn't behaving as I had always been told that it most certainly does, in other words, needs to, behave. This happened while in graduate school and centered on just one verse. It says, For they drank from the spiritual rock that accompanied them, and that rock was Christ, 1 Corinthians 10.4. He says that you can get a more detailed version on uh, his link here, but of course the link is broken, so maybe someone can figure that out for me. Anyways, he goes on to say, Paul is referring to the incident in the Pentateuch where the Israelites got water from a rock while wandering in the desert for 40 years. To equate Christ with the rock is a typical example of Paul's Christ-centered reading of his scripture. Our Old Testament, the Savior was present with God's people then as he is now. All fine and good, but what threw me was the word accompanied. One day in class, my professor James Kugel was lecturing me on the ways that Second Temple Jewish interpreters handled episodes like water from Iraq. The curious detail in the Old Testament is that the incident happened twice, once at the beginning of the wilderness period, Exodus 17, and again toward the end of the 40-year period, Numbers 20. 
This curious fact led some Jewish interpreters to conclude that the two rocks were actually one and the same. Hence, one rock accompanied the Israelites on their 40-year journey. We see this idea quite clearly in a Jewish text from the late 2nd century CE called the Tosefta. It says, And so the well which was with the Israelites in the wilderness was a rock, the size of a large round vessel, surging and gurgling upward, as from the mouth of its little flask, rising with them up onto the mountains and going down with them into the valleys. Wherever the Israelites would camp, it made camp with them on a high place opposite the entry of the tent of meeting. There is a certain ancient logic at work here. After all, the Israelites had manna given to them miraculously every morning, along with a nice helping of quail meat. But what about water? Are we to think that the corresponding miraculous supply of water was only given twice, 40 years apart? Of course not. So to solve this problem, the water supply became mobile a portable drinking fountain. Evangelicals could write off this bit of biblical interpretation as entertaining or just plain silly, which many have done, but 1 Corinthians 10.4 complicates things. Paul refers to Jesus not just as the rock, but the accompanying rock. He says, Paul, a Jewish interpreter, is showing his familiarity and acceptance of this creative Jewish handling of the water from a rock incident. Let me put a finer point on that. The Old Testament says nothing about a portable supply of water from a rock, but Paul does. Paul says something about the Old Testament that the Old Testament doesn't say. He wasn't following the evangelical rule of grammatical historical contextual interpretation. He was doing something else, something odd for us, something ancient and Jewish. And once I saw this, I knew the Bible was no longer protected under glass. It was out there, part of an ancient world I really didn't understand and was never really prepared to handle. So then he got, as it goes on about, you know, some other things that aren't necessarily important. So here comes along Professor Jim Hamilton of the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, and he's writing on Desiring God and this is a really interesting article in response to Dr. Peden's. He says, And the rock was Christ. Some have interpreted Paul's claims in 1 Corinthians 10.4 as a departure from grammatical historical exegesis, or even as evidence that Paul gave credence to unhistorical Jewish myths. A close reading of his words against the backdrop of the canon, however, shows that Paul was reading Moses the way Moses intended. In the Pentateuch, Moses identifies the two water-giving rocks in the wilderness with Yahweh himself. Later in the Old Testament, the psalmists and prophets further identify the rock with Yahweh and look forward to the new exodus. In the Gospels, Jesus fulfills Old Testament expectations for that new exodus with himself as the bread from heaven and water-giving rock. And in 1 Corinthians, therefore, Paul embraces the united perspective of the biblical authors in drinking water from the rock. The Israelites drank from a type of Christ who now lives as a thirst-quenching spiritual rock of the church. Okay, so that's a pretty crazy argument there. That's going to have a great burden of proof, and I think he might give it to us. He goes back to talk about Peterans. Identify, he's saying, you know, he identifies it as his aha moment when he realized he was taught about the Bible and says, let me put a finer point on that. No rock moved in the Old Testament, but Paul said one did. This essentially means that Paul is wrong 
unless if he's doing something f super funky here, which either way, that should be an eye-opener to us. But we'll see if that's what he's actually doing. Paul says, he, um, he goes on, Paul says something about the Old Testament that the Old Testament didn't say. He wasn't following the evangelical rule of grammatical, historical, contextual interpretation. Hamilton gets a little cheeky here when he says, I'm going to argue in this essay that we should regard this moment, you know, Dr. P. Enns' moment, as an oops rather than an aha. That is, Enns' conclusions do not stand up to examination. Later, he says, before we look at the Old Testament context and New Testament claims of fulfillment, let us observe that Paul does not say exactly what N says he does. N claims that Paul says the rock moved, and he takes that as conclusive evidence that Paul believed an ancient Jewish myth that was not, in fact, true. Note, however, that Paul identifies the rock as Christ, in which case a possible interpretation is that Paul does not endorse the Jewish myth at all, but rather says that the people drank from Christ, their rock, and that Christ followed them through the wilderness. In what follows, we turn our attention to the Old Testament context of Exodus 17 and Numbers 20 and move from there to how the ideas developed in the rest of the Pentateuch and later Old Testament writings. We will then consider the way Jesus seems to present himself as the fulfillment of the water from the rock episode before returning to Paul's treatment and 1 Corinthians 10. Hamilton, Hamilton notes, Michael Morales, which is by far a really great scholar, has persuasively suggested that the whole of the Pentateuch is chiastically structured, centering on the Day of Atonement in Leviticus 16, with the two episodes of water from the rock standing across from one another in the literary structure. This suggests that Moses, author of the Pentateuch, intended the two episodes to be read in light of one another. Hamilton says, given the topic under discussion, it seems particularly significant that the first of these episodes entails Yahweh standing before Moses on the rock that Moses is to strike, from which the water will flow from Israel to drink, saying, Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and water shall come out of it, and the people will drink. Exodus 17.6 It is as almost as though by placing himself on the rock that Moses is to strike, Yahweh means to identify himself in some sense with the rock, so that when Moses strikes the rock, he implicitly strikes Yahweh, as a result of which the people's need for water will be met. Some points of contact between the contexts of Exodus 17 and Numbers 20 are worth observing. For instance, after the water from the rock in Exodus 17, Israel defeats Amalek, and Moses builds an altar and names it Yahweh is my banner. The term rendered banner reflecting the Hebrew word nesh. The term rendered banner reflecting the Hebrew word nesh. I don't know, my transliteration isn't the best. After the water from the rock in Numbers 20, Israel defeats Arad in Numbers 21, 1-3, but then speaks against God and Moses in verse 5, in response to which the Lord sends fiery serpents so that many Israelites die in verse 6. When the people repent, the Lord instructs Moses to make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole. And the term rendered pole in Numbers 21, 8-9 is the same as the term rendered banner in Exodus 17, 15, which is Ness. 
The only other place this term is used in all the Pentateuch is Numbers 26.10, making its presence in the context that immediately follow the two water from the rock episodes all the more noticeable. In other words, this doesn't seem to be a coincidence. The writer of the Pentateuch is making this connection. He says, given the myth of the movable whale that supposedly follows Israel from Exodus 17 until they enter the promised land in Joshua, it also would seem noteworthy that they come to a well in Numbers 21, 10 to 20. In terms of narrative space, Israel has the rest of Numbers 22 to 36 and all of Deuteronomy before they enter the land. This includes the defeat of Sihon and Og in Numbers 21, the Balaam oracles in Numbers 22 to 24, and the sin at Baal Peor in Numbers 25, followed by the war against Midian in Numbers 31. So it would seem that they still face some time before they enter the land of promise, which is to say the Pentateuch itself shows that the rocks Moses struck were not Israel's only water sources during the 40-year wilderness wandering. This is big. It doesn't really make sense for the rock, which supposedly has a bunch of water coming out of it, to be following them around if they have other water sources already. It seems unnecessary. He says the two narratives in question, Exodus 17 and Numbers 20, stand in literary relationship to one another, but at no point does Moses indicate that a literal stone or a movable well followed Israel through the wilderness. In continuation, he says, note again that the Apostle Paul does not, as Peter in suggests, endorse the Jewish myth of the movable well. In other words, he's saying that Peter ends is wrong. That is, Paul does not say that the rock from which the water flowed in Exodus 17 followed Israel through the wilderness, giving them water across the 40-year period. Rather, Paul says that Israel drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. 1 Corinthians 10.4 Now just to be clear, that is a completely vague passage. It doesn't really explain like what happened. At the same time, let's see what other explanations we can get from this from Hamilton. He says, why does Paul call it a spiritual rock? And where would he have gotten that idea? As a step toward an answer for why Paul would refer to a spiritual rock, I make two related observations. First, Paul identifies this spiritual rock as Christ. Second, the KJV and ESV capitalize rock in the phrase spiritual rock, which seems to indicate that these translation committees understand Paul to be calling God the spiritual rock, with Paul then identifying Christ with God. As to where Paul might have gotten these ideas, I contend that he got them from the Old Testament itself, beginning with Moses. In Deuteronomy 32, Moses calls God the rock five times. And in parentheses he says, all with the Hebrew term shur for rock, which is also in Exodus 17.6, whereas Numbers 28-11 uses Selah. In verse 4, it says, The rock, his work is perfect, and for all his ways are justice, a God of faithfulness and without iniquity, just and upright is he. Verse 15, But Jeshurun grew fat and kicked. You grew fat, stout and sleek. Then he forsook God, who made him and scoffed at the rock of his salvation. Verse 18 says, you were unmindful of the rock that bore you, and you forgot the God who gave you birth. Verse 30, 
How could one have chased a thousand, and two have put ten thousand to flight, unless their rock had sold them, and the Lord had given them up? Verse 31, For their rock is not as our rock, our enemies are by themselves. He says, Perhaps reflecting the incident in Exodus 17:6, when Yahweh stood on the rock, so that when Moses struck the rock, it was as though he struck through Yahweh to smite the rock. In Deuteronomy 32:13, There seems to be an indication made between Yahweh Israel's rock and the rock from which they drank. 32.13 He made him ride on the high places of the land, and he ate the produce of the field, and he suckled him with and he suckled him with honey out of the rock, Hebrew word selah, and oil out of the flinty rock, sure. Since both terms for rock appear in Deuteronomy 32.13, the one from Exodus 17.6, sure, and the other from Numbers 28.11, Selah, it seems that Moses means to reference both passages. Note, too, the proximity of the rock statements to one another in the poetry of Deuteronomy 32. Yahweh is the rock whose work is perfect, verse 4. And he suckled his people with oil from the flinty rock, verse 13, but they were unmindful of Yahweh, their rock, verse 15. It also seems significant that Moses does not speak of prosaic and historical water from the rock, but rather speaks poetically in verse 13 of honey from the crag and oil from the rock. Hereby, Moses accentuates the life-giving provision the Lord made for his people, and simultaneously, he forges a connection between the identity of Yahweh as the rock for Israel and the physical rock struck by Moses from which water flowed. I want to point out here as well that teasing out the sophisticated metaphorical and theological implications of the kinds of statements Moses makes does not entail a departure from grammatical historical interpretation. No, Understanding all the fullness of what Moses has written across the Pentateuch demands that we understand his grammatical constructions and the historical meaning of his terms in their literary context. We get at poetic, symbolic, metaphorical meanings by going through grammatical, historical interpretation in canonical context, not by departing from these necessary interpretive controls. Before moving on to references to the water from the rock episodes later in the Old Testament, we should make two observations on what Moses meant to communicate in the Pentateuch. First, we have no indication that Moses intended his audience to understand that the rock he struck in Exodus 17.6 became mobile and followed Israel through the wilderness all the way to the second incident in Numbers 28-11. In fact, the use of different Hebrew terms for rock in the both passages seem to indicate that Moses did not intend his audience to understand that he struck the same object on the two occasions. Second, there are indications that Moses meant for his audience at some level to identify Yahweh with the rock. Moses clearly distinguishes between Yahweh and the rock, and yet by relating how Yahweh stood before Moses on the rock, he was to strike and then by referring to Yahweh as Israel's rock in close proximity to his rehearsal of the water from the rock episodes in Deuteronomy 32, Moses seems to say that Yahweh is the real source of Israel's provision, the real solid ground, and stable shelter. Yahweh is the rock for his people. Additionally, if we haven't had enough evidence here, there are a number of references to the Lord providing water from the rock through the rest of the Old Testament. Consider the following. Israel 48, 21, 
a bunch of texts in the Psalms. Job. We're not going to read those because that would just get lame. But note, note three observations on these texts. First, just as Moses never indicates that the physical stone he struck in Exodus 17.6 followed Israel through the wilderness for 40 years, so also later Old Testament authors never indicate that during the 40-year wandering in the wilderness, Israel relied upon a movable well to provide them with water. That is to say, the myth of the movable well does not derive from exegesis of the Old Testament. Second, in the same way that Moses identified Yahweh with a rock, later Old Testament authors rarely speak as David does. Psalm 18.2 says, The Lord is my rock, Hebrew word for Selah, and my fortress, and my deliverer, my God, my rock, Hebrew word Shur, in whom I take refuge. In the bullet pointed listed above, I include the references to the water from the rock in Psalms 78, 15, 16, and 20. And in that same psalm, we see the assertion, they remembered that God was their rock at verse 35. Similarly, in Psalm 42, 1, the psalmist likens God to the streams of water for which the deer pants. And then in 42, 9, he says, I say to God, my rock. Third, these references to the water from the rock episodes in later Old Testament texts often point back to the same way God saved his people at the Exodus in order to point forward to the way he will save them at the new exodus in other words once the two water from the rock episodes in exodus 17 and numbers 20 have been narrated when water from the rock is mentioned in later old testament text these later authors are contributing to the typological expectation of a new exodus i contend then that moses the prophets and the psalmists all treat the water from the rock episodes in the same way moses narrates the historical events of the exodus and because he has presented similar patterns of events in the lives of Abraham and Jacob, while also indicating that the conquest of land will be a new exodus, the historical correspondences generate an escalating sense of expectation. That is to say, Moses intends his audience to understand that the exodus including related wonders like manna from heaven and water from the rock, typifies the way God will save his people in the future. Prophets and the psalmists have learned from Moses and been led by the Spirit to understand the exodus and water from the rock in the same way, and thus they too present Israel's past experience of salvation as typifying what God will do for them in the future. Almost there, guys. Moses and the Old Testament authors who followed him did not indicate that the literal stone followed Israel through the wilderness, but they did indicate that insofar as Yahweh was Israel's real source of protection and provision, he was their rock. Further, they also indicate that the exodus and God's provision for this people in the wilderness typify the way God would save his people in the future. I contend that the New Testament authors learn this same perspective from Moses, the prophet, and the Lord Jesus. Now we're going to talk about John's gospel, okay? In his gospel, John everywhere presents Jesus as the one who brings about the typological fulfillment of the exodus from Egypt. As part of this, in John 10, 10-14, Jesus presents himself as the source of living water. Then in John 6, Jesus is the prophet like Moses who feeds the people in the wilderness in the season of Passover, then having miraculously crossed the water. Jesus identifies himself as the true bread from heaven that gives life going so far as to assert, I am the bread of life. Whereas the Feast of Passover celebrated the exodus from Egypt, the Feast of Tabernacles celebrated the way God provided for his people through the 40-year wilderness wandering, 
when God led his people by the pillar of fire and cloud and gave them water from the rock. These two aspects of Israel's experience likely informed the famous candle lighting and water pouring ceremonies that came to be celebrated in the Feast of Tabernacles. In keeping with this, Jesus not only presents himself as the light of the world in John 8:12, but he also presents himself as a rock-like source of water, only he offers something better than water, the Holy Spirit. In the same way that Jesus is the fulfillment of the manna from heaven and the pillar of fire, he is the fulfillment of the rock from which the water flowed. Thus we read in John 7, 37-39, On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive, for as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. I submit that John intends his audience to understand this statement along the following lines. In the same way that God saved his people from Egypt, then provided for them in the wilderness, God is saving his people through Jesus, and will provide for them and in him until they reach their destination. In the fulfillment of the Exodus accomplished by Jesus, however, God gives something better than manna from heaven and water from the rock to sustain his people on their life journey through the wilderness to the fulfillment of the land of promise, the new Jerusalem, and the new heavens and new earth. God gives his people Christ himself as the bread of life, and Jesus gives to himself the Holy Spirit as the fulfillment of the water from the rock. John has asserted that Christ is the word made flesh, and that the word was in the beginning, was with God, and was God. John thus identifies Jesus with Yahweh, and his presentation includes Christ, the one who has promised living water being struck. One of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once there came out blood and water. After testifying that he tells the truth, John immediately asserts that the fact that the legs of Jesus were not broken fits with his death being the typological fulfillment of the death of the Passover lamb and the fulfillment of the Exodus pattern of events. These things took place that the scripture might be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. Verse 36. From the Gospel of John, we can make the same three points about the idea of water from the rock that we have made about this theme in Moses and the Prophets. First, at no point does John present Jesus or any other character in his narrative suggesting that a literal rock or movable well followed Israel through the wilderness across the 40-year wandering. Second, Yahweh, and in John's case, Jesus, whom he identifies with Yahweh is symbolically and metaphorically presented as the one who abides with, provides for, and protects his people. And like Moses, John presents the Lord as the stricken water river. And third, God's deliverance of his people at the Exodus and through the wilderness typifies the future salvation which John claims is filled in Jesus. This is where things get spicy. He says, given the claims made by Peter Enns, we can engage in a thought experiment at this point. Which is the more likely scenario? That Paul perpetuates what Moses, the prophets, the psalmist, and the evangelist John indicate about water from the rock, or that Paul picks up a relatively obscure Jewish myth, a myth unsubstantiated by exegesis of the Torah, unsupported in the prophets and Psalms, and unattested in any tradition of what Jesus taught, and therefore perpetuates it in 1 Corinthians 10.4. That's spicy. It is not as though there were no careful thinkers in Paul's earliest audiences, and it is not as though all his letters were recognized as having been inspired by the Spirit and included in the New Testament. I suspect that if the believing community had understood Paul to be perpetuating that myth, which was in fact false to history, they would not have received what we now refer to as 1 Corinthians into their growing collection of New Testament scripture. 
I don't know. That's pretty speculative, but I guess I guess it's possible that they would have thought that First Corinthians wasn't inspired if Paul said this. But on the other hand, why wouldn't they have thought that that thing must have been true if Paul said it? I don't know. So what did Paul say and what does it mean? Paul has addressed the identity issues, sexual immorality, and idolatry plaguing the Corinthian church in 1 Corinthians 1 to 9. The identity issues manifest in members of the church making themselves notable through their claims about whom they follow, whether Paul, Cephas, or Christ. 1 Corinthians 1.12 And in his opening words in chapter 10, Paul continues to reshape their understanding of who they are with his typological application of scripture. He addresses the Jewish and Gentile congregation as his brothers, and refers to the Exodus generation as our fathers. Paul says, I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea. Paul speaks to the church as though they belong to the family of faith. In the reports that they have come to him, Paul may have heard that some of the members of the church thought that because they had been baptized and had partaken of the Lord's Supper, they could engage in sexual immorality and or idolatry with impunity, or he could be anticipating this unacceptable response. He seems to address this mindset with his typological explanation of what happened to Israel in 1 Corinthians 10, 2-5. Paul's view appears to be that Moses presented a recurring pattern in which Noah was saved through the floodwaters of judgment, then baby Moses was saved in his ark basket through floodwaters of judgment, and then the nation was saved through the floodwaters of judgment when they crossed the Red Sea. He says there are verbal connections between these narratives that signal Moses' intent to link them. And I agree, I did an interview with Dr. Alastair Roberts on this very subject. Make sure to check out that in the description. He goes on to say, The Lord Jesus seems to allude to this salvation through the floodwaters of judgment theme when he speaks of his looming death as a baptism he has to undergo in Mark 10. Paul explains in Romans 6 that when believers are immersed in water, they are plunged into a symbolic union with Christ in his death, that they might then symbolically rise from the waters within. Thus, when Paul speaks of Israel being baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea in 1 Corinthians 10 2, he words it this way to highlight the pattern of salvation through the waters of judgment that typify Christian baptism. Paul moves to address the presumption that baptism allows one to sin with impunity by rehearsing how, with most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness, which is verse 5 in 1 Corinthians. The point being, Israelites, and he quotes, were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, verse 2, and God judged them for the sin, so do not think that having been baptized into Christ allows for continuing in sin with impunity. He says, before we proceed to discuss 1 Corinthians 10, 3-4, we must note the thoroughly typological way Paul is dealing with the events of the Exodus from Egypt, the Greek rendered by the ESV examples in verse 6, and the example in verse 11 is the root we transliterate to form the English term type. We could just as well translate these statements as follows. Now these became types of us. Now these things happen to them typologically. The point I'm trying to emphasize is that just as Moses indicated that the Exodus typified future salvation, just as the prophets and the psalmists learned that view from Moses, and just John presented Jesus as the one who brought the Exodus pattern of salvation to typological fulfillment, so Paul applies the Exodus and the wilderness narrative typologically to the Corinthians, 
on this point. Paul's understanding is consistent with that of Moses, Isaiah, Asaph, John, and the Jesus of Nazareth. When Paul speaks in 1 Corinthians 10, 3-4 of the Exodus generation eating spiritual food and drinking spiritual drink, he clearly has in view the manna from heaven and the water from the rock. Let's read 1 Corinthians 10, 3-4 again one more time. This is Paul saying, And all ate the same spiritual food, and all drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. He says, he seems to refer to these as spiritual as opposed to natural, the same contrast made in 1 Corinthians 2, 14-15 because unlike normal food and water obtained in the usual human way, this food and water was provided through the direct intervention of God. The fact that Paul speaks of the Lord's Supper in 10, 16-21, and again in 11, 17-34, fits with the idea that he sees the manna from heaven and water from the rock as prefiguring types of the Lord's Supper, in the same way that having saved Israel from Egypt, God provided for them through the wilderness on their journey to the land of promise. So now, having saved Christians through the fulfillment of the Exodus in Christ, God provides the Lord's Supper to sustain his people through the wilderness to the fulfillment of the land of promise and the new heavens and new earth. Paul's treatment of the Lord's Supper thus matches the way that the Lord Jesus provided himself as the fulfillment of the manna from heaven in John 6, and the fulfillment of the rock from which the water flowed in John 7. This brings us to Paul's explanatory comment in 1 Corinthians 10, 4b. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. The fact that Paul calls this a spiritual rock argues against the idea that he means to refer to a literal stone that supposedly followed Israel around in the wilderness. That he proceeds to identify this rock with Christ amounts to the assertion of a conclusion that naturally follows from the premises he has established, and neither the premises nor the conclusion has anything to do with the myth of a movable will. I think this might be one of his strongest points. He uses the word spiritual rock. I mean, that, that pretty much... It's pretty clear that he's not referring to a literal rock. Rather, Paul's premises are those that we have seen in the law, prophets, writings, and gospels. First, this is a spiritual rock for the same reason the food and drink were spiritual. Because it is not a naturally occurring physical stone as a source of water, but something that results from the direct intervention of the transforming work of God. Second, just as Moses identifies Yahweh with the rock, and just as John identifies the Christ with Yahweh, so Paul identifies the rock with Christ. Third, just as the point of identifying Yahweh as the rock was to communicate his presence with protection of and provision for his people, so also Paul asserts that the people of Israel experienced the presence, protection, and provision made by Christ. This affirms the inseparable operations of the members of the Godhead. What the Father does, the Son does, and it matches Jude referring to Jesus who saved the people out of the land of Egypt. Now I do want to say that in regards to this verse, and all drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ, he is using the word spiritual drink and spiritual rock. Under Pete Inns' view, I could see a situation when Enns could be taking the view that something like when Paul is referring to spiritual, he's referring to he's referring to where it came from. You know, that the spiritual drink came from God and the rock came from God. Although it doesn't necessarily make sense to say that the rock came from God because it's not like God created the rock. You know, the, the story implies that it was kind of already there and then, you know, Yahweh got on top of it and then they, they hit the rock and, you know, water comes out. So I can see some way out of it, but I don't know how probable it is and doesn't seem that likely. 
Hamilton says, Paul's point here is to warn the Corinthians. He urges them not to think wrongly that they can sin with impunity since they partake of the Lord's Supper. His proof against this is that even though the Israelites partake of the type of the Lord's Supper, God judged them for their sin. Why does Paul assert that the rock was Christ? By doing so, he affirms that the God who saved Israel at the Exodus and in the wilderness is the Christ who has saved Christians. Almost there, guys. Almost there. He says, how would the affirmation of the little-known myth of the movable will have helped Paul to make this point with his Corinthian audience? Would it not have been a confusing distraction from the point he's out to make? Would it have helped him to establish topological identity between Israel and the church? Would it have helped him to warn the church in Corinth away from the sexual immorality and idolatry that tempted them? Would it have helped them to relish their experience of the fulfillment of the manna from heaven and water from the rock as they partake of the Lord's Supper? Would it have established him and the church as sound interpreter of the law and the prophets as a faithful exponent of the message of the Lord Jesus? Okay, I'm with him all the way up to here. I mean, I don't think there's a Jewish right. Okay, I'm with him all the way up to here. I mean... If we think about it, does this, you know, ancient Jewish writing, extra biblical writing that says, you know, a rock followed them through the wilderness, does that make sense? Not a ton. At the same time, I have a hard time thinking that, you know, these ancient Corinthians would think that Paul is a terrible writer because he included this. If anything, if Paul thinks it's a good idea, he's going to include it in there. He's not like concerned like, oh, you know, my audience is going to think that I'm a bad writer if I include this in there. Like, you know, that's not, that doesn't really make sense with how we form views. But, you know, that's not a, that's not a huge point here. He says, Paul comments in 1 Corinthians 4, 6, I have applied all these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, brothers, that you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written. Bringing in the myth of the movable will undoubtedly goes beyond what is written and such interpretive moves more likely characterizes Paul's opponents in Corinth rather than Paul himself. Right, but I don't think the the Jewish writer that said that there's a rock going through the wilderness or whatever, following them around with water, I don't think that person would say, oh, you know, I'm adding to scripture. I think that he's simply just making a conclusion from what he thinks is a reasonable point in the text, that there's two rocks, and if there's one at the beginning, one at the end, that it makes sense that, oh, the rock must have been following them around. That's why there's two rocks. Of course, you know, if I'm going to go with that route, I'd have to explain what 1 Corinthians 4, 6 is, which I don't necessarily care to do. I don't think it's really that important for this discussion. At the same time, though, I don't necessarily see that as too convincing. The fact that the movable will would not have helped Paul in any of these ways does not establish that he did not reference the myth. A good example of this principle in play is how super fundamentalist, you know, preachers, they will quote 1 Corinthians 4, 6 saying, oh, you know, don't go beyond what the scripture says. And then, of course, they go beyond what the scripture says. I mean, the simple fact is that when it says that you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written is actually quite vague. What Paul could be meaning by that is actually a bit of a difficult question. But as I said, not a big point. He says that the fact that the movable will would not have helped Paul in any of these ways does not establish that he did not reference the myth that he did not say it has already done that. Paul did not say something like 40 years did he rain bread from heaven for them, and he brought them quails from the sea in a well of water following them, which is what Philo said. Paul did not teach that the miracle that happened in Exodus 17.6 kept happening across the 40 years in the wilderness because the well from which the water flowed actually followed Israel through the journey. No, 
Paul did what Moses did. He treated the Exodus and the wilderness narrative typologically. He identified the rock with God, and for Paul, that includes God the Son, Christ, and hereby we see the brilliance of Paul as a biblical theologian. He has succeeded in the task of understanding and embracing the perspective of the biblical authors, and the church recognized that Paul's success was due in no small part to the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Further, they recognized that the Spirit had inspired Paul's writings of what we have referred to as 1 Corinthians, as attested by its presence in the New Testament. He ends with saying, Christ is the rock, let all who thirst go to him, and those who go to him shall never hunger, those who believe in him never thirst. For what he gives is better than mere water. Indeed, he gives a spirit. And those who eat this bread and drink this cup proclaim his death until he comes. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. In my comments, amen. Anyways, this has been a lot of fun. Um, from the original question we were looking to ask is, you know, how are the New Testament writers reading the Old Testament? It appears they're reading it typologically, which we can conclude that they're not reading it completely literally. At the same time, they're probably not reading it as Pete Enns seems to imply, which is that it's, you know, some making some really weird jumps from the text that aren't there. That doesn't mean that doesn't happen in other places. We would have to go, we'd have to go in each individual instance to look at those there. But at the same time, I hope this video opens up the idea of biblical interpretation according to what the New Testament writers are doing. If you see references to Adam or Eve or Jesus or Abraham, maybe hypothesize what it might be to read this typologically instead of completely literally as some might think that Paul does. Anyways, this has been a lot of fun. I hope you guys enjoyed this. I'd love to hear your thoughts in the comments and let me know if you disagree with this. Anyways, I hope you guys have a good one. Like and subscribe for more of this. See you guys.